Move by Mamma Mia is the exercise app for anybody, anywhere. And in case you missed it, we dropped a brand new stretching collection that can be used to improve mobility and bookend your favourite sweat sessions. Mamma Mia subscribers get unlimited access to Move and we drop new workouts every single week. If you're on the hunt for movement that makes you feel good, head to move.mamamia.com.au and use the code MOVE10 to get $10 off a yearly subscription. Just a note, this episode contains descriptions and discussion of obsessive-compulsive disorder. Hi, I'm Mia Friedman and welcome to No Filter. Obsessive-compulsive disorder is one of those things that people often say they have as a joke. You know, like, oh, I'm really OCD about germs. Or, I'm totally obsessive-compulsive about eating the same thing for breakfast every day. But actual OCD is very, very different. Actual OCD can derail and even destroy your life. And that's very nearly what happened to 23-year-old model Lily Bailey, who has written a book called Because We Are Bad, which details her excruciating struggle with severe obsessive-compulsive disorder, which manifested itself as a voice in her head when she was only a child. Lily became convinced that she did horrible things that people noticed. And the way she dealt with this was to modify her behaviour in ways that ultimately overtook her entire world. I then kind of decided to start using this system of mental lists to remember what I had done that was bad and think about whether it was bad instead of compulsively apologising. Lily wrote her book, a memoir, to help others who have OCD and to help those of us who don't to better understand it. OCD affects around 500,000 people in Australia and it manifests in different forms. It is in the top 10 most disabling illnesses of all time and it was truly fascinating to have Lily explain what she went through and still struggles with to some extent today. She's an extraordinary woman. She's a model now and it was just a pleasure to interview her. Here's Lily Bailey. Lily, congratulations on the book. When I first heard about you and about your book and that it was about OCD, I was like, I'm too suggestible. I can't read this book. And I worried that any propensity I had in myself for OCD would be exacerbated by reading it. And I also thought it would be a heavy read, but it is a funny read. How old are you? I'm 23. You are such a good writer. You are such a good writer. When did you actually write the book? Um, So... The book came out in the UK last year and I finished writing it a few months before that. So you were like a child when you wrote the book. <laughs> you are you are very, very talented as a writer. Is writing something that you have done throughout your life to process things or was it really that you decided to write the book? Yeah, I wrote my first book when I was eight. It oh, was about go. a cat who liked tartan. <laughs> <laughs> One of the classics. I thought it was going to be a bestseller, but it didn't catch on. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I've always loved writing. I I also wrote poetry till I was about 15, and I realized how terrible I was at poetry, so I stopped. I mean, I'm not just saying it. It's not like, you know, when someone will be like, I bet you're not that bad. No, I was was shockingly (laughs) terrible at poetry. Like, it was just the most self-indulgent pile of poo you've ever seen. So I gradually had the realization that that wasn't going to be my forte. But I continued writing prose, which I love Mm. and have always Mm. loved. And then, yeah, I was working as a journalist, and I was approached and asked to write a book about OCD. And I thought... I don't know if I want to write, I don't know if I want to write a book about like my most private and a most struggle and, you know, really lay my 
my soul out for the world to pick at um and i don't know whether i want to be like that mental health kind of like whether that's you know all i'm known for ever totally. but i'd got to the point where it was just the way people were speaking about OCD and like public discourse was just really infuriating me. Your form of OCD manifested as you feeling that you were a bad person and this internal dialogue that almost manifested itself as a person outside yourself as an actual character, which is why the use of we throughout yeah. the book. It's not me, it's we. Who is we? So I heard my OCD as a voice within my head and my inner voice would always say, we should do this or we should do that. Um, and she didn't have a name. She was just she. And I didn't see her. She was she was like within within my head. I would feel her moving around to different parts. And I don't know why it happened like that. So I have come across other people who hear their OCD as a voice. It's not like the most common thing ever, but it can happen. And what sort of things did she force you to do? Uh, so initially, one of the big things I was worried about was that my sister would die in her sleep. And she, she, my friend, would sort of say, you know, we need to check on her. We need to feel that her heart is still beating and that she's still breathing. And then, you know, we'd go back down to my room and we'd be praying that my family wouldn't leave me. And then we'd be like, oh, but Ella could have died in that time we need to check on her again and you know then we'd be going back downstairs and then doing uh, the kind of more slightly more typical things people associate with OCD like checking plugs and checking taps and that kind of stuff that was the first kind of things that we did and then as I got older it developed more into making lists of things I had done that could be bad you, you call your OCD a friend she the she is a friend but she was almost an abuser or a captor, wasn't she, in some ways? Yeah, then that's actually how my psychiatrist described uh, my friend. She said, you know, she's like an abusive partner. You know, yeah. she's really horrible to you, but you go along with it because you're so scared about what will happen if you don't. And occasionally she's just nice enough to you to make it. you think it's all worth it, which sometimes she was. Sometimes she would tell me that things were going to be okay, and that I was okay, and that, you know, in time we would learn to be a good person. And I think that that kind of made her quite seductive um, and made me more inclined to go along with what she was asking me to do. Because you were always trying to please her and satisfy yeah. her but her list of demands kept growing exponentially longer and more outlandish didn't mm. they until they sort of started taking over your life. Yeah. Explain the system of letters that you had that was um, a symptom of your teenage years very much wasn't it? Mm. Yeah so I whenever I'd done something wrong I used to apologize for it and you know I'd be saying to my friend like I'm really sorry I bumped into you in the hallway I'm really sorry I'm really sorry and my friend would be going I don't I don't remember you bumping into me you mean your actual friend I, know, like an I was actual just person, thinking I need yeah. to clarify that it's you'd bump into a human I bump into an actual <laughs> human a real real person <laughs> and I'd be and I'd be thinking oh god I've bumped into her and you know maybe she's gonna have like inner bleeding and um, maybe even die and it's all my fault so I'd be apologising I'm really really sorry anyway um, I gradually came to realise that you know that was making me look a bit odd and then that came to a head when I, I won a prize for being the most apologetic girl and that was just hugely embarrassing and so I, I then kind of decided to start using this system of mental lists to 
remember what I had done that was bad and think about whether it was bad instead of compulsively apologizing. For instance, say I was talking to a friend and I'd be thinking, you know, maintain eye contact, maintain eye contact. And then I might actually end up like looking a bit lower than her eyes or thinking that I had and being like, oh my God, I've stared at her boobs. So then I'd take the letter B for boobs and put it on a list. And then maybe she tells me something about her day that's quite good. And I don't look happy enough. And I'm like, I'm not a nice person because I should look happier. So I'm like H for happy. Then I reply and my voice sounds a bit squealy. So I'm like S for squealy. Then we go to sit down and I walk and it's not a completely straight line. And I'm thinking W for walk. So then... I'm, I, I'm, I'm repeating those letters in my head and I'm going BHSW, BHSW, BHSW and that might be in the space of 30 seconds to a minute so then if you think about how many of those you would get in a day it's just kind of relentless and then you would need to carve out time in each day to go through and order your letters wouldn't you so you'd have to say okay B for boobs I looked but you had to sort of talk your way through them all didn't you yeah and that would never end. Yeah, no, it was relentless. And I had this kind of feeling that if I just did it enough, then one day I would be a good person. I wouldn't need to do this anymore. But that point never came. <laughs> Tell me about therapy and uh, the psychiatrist or psychologist that you saw and the role that she played. I saw a psychiatrist and I had cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT, um, which is kind of different to classical psychotherapy and that it's less about thinking, why am I like this? What happened? It's more about dealing with the obsessions in the moment as they happen and learning to do what we call exposures, which means, you know, that you feel the thought come in, the obsession, and rather than doing what you would normally do and just completely going with that obsession and doing whatever compulsions your you Your letters do, in your case. For instance, my letters. Okay, let's take the example of the the boobs thing. Yeah. Rather than uh, writing that letter down or remembering it in my head, I would have to go, okay, maybe I did look at her boobs. And so so what if I did? And then if I'm going to take it a step further and do hardcore exposure therapy, then that might involve actually intentionally looking at someone's boobs and just seeing what happens, testing it out. And, and seeing that actually nothing happens, the world doesn't end, no one says anything, yeah. no one probably notices, yeah. and going... Oh, yeah. I don't have to stress about that. Yeah. And how did that manifest itself? Did you actually get to that point or was it? Yeah. And I mean, I continue to do exposures to this day and I find them helpful. And it's for me, it's a case of constantly, you know, having to feel the fear and kind of go with it. I mean, yesterday we went to a koala sanctuary and then there were some kangaroos and we, we were kind of like looking at these kangaroos and then there was a mama kangaroo that had a joey and the joey was sticking its leg out of her pouch and I was momentarily quite confused because it looked like a dick with a claw <laughs> um, and in the past I would just be like oh my god I've looked at a kangaroo's dick claw oh my god oh my god and other people are looking at me and they think I'm looking and this is so stressful so my new response has to be something along the lines of I'm not going to look away I'm going to keep looking because I actually really want to see this baby kangaroo but it's really cute and then actually taking a risk and verbally saying out loud it looks like a dick claw and then being like okay what's the worst thing that can happen someone thinks I'm turned on by a kangaroo mm. nightmare mm. Mm. But in actual <laughs> but, fact, but actually, like no one does, and go, yeah, it does look like a dick claw. Yeah, right. <laughs> you thought you were responsible for killing someone, didn't you? Yeah, I thought I was responsible for killing my cousin Tom. Uh, he was born with a hole in his heart, and he died before the age of one. And um, when my mum 
sat me and my sister down to tell us what had happened. I was quite young and I jumped the gun and I said, it's, it's Tom, isn't it? He's dead. I just had this sense that that was, I think because of the situation she was sitting us down, it seemed quite kind of serious. I had a sense, we'd kind of known it was coming. I thought that that was what happened. And my mum was really quite shocked that I had said, like, just come out with that. And she was like, oh, how, do you, how do you know that kind of thing? And I suddenly felt really anxious. So I smiled because I was like trying to be like, it's okay, mum, it's fine. And she was like, don't smile about this. Like, it's not, it's not a smiling matter. And at that moment, I was like, oh, my God, maybe he wasn't even dead before I said it. And I'm really bad and I'm smiling and I'm doing all the wrong things. And, and that became quite a powerful thought. And I, I began to think that if I wanted someone to die, then maybe they could die or they would die. Which is a, um, a hugely arrogant thing to think in a way, isn't it? That you have these mystical, magical powers to kill people with your mind and with your thoughts. Yeah, I mean, magical thinking is really common among people with OCD. Magical thinking just being where you think that uh, your actions can affect something that they, you know, that they actually really can't. And it is quite an arrogant. It's almost like a god god complex. Yeah, that's what I was um, thinking. I think when you're living with it in the moment, you don't feel especially arrogant or supreme. But I guess the concept of of that way of thinking obviously supposes that you have some kind of yeah. amazing power. Does it interfere with your life very much these days? I mean, you know, obviously travel and a book tour is a weird thing to be doing anyway, but how under control is it these days? Uh, when I published the book originally, I felt like I'd completely recovered. So I went to a support group and um, quite a few of my friends from there were going, okay, well, you know, it might come back. And I was sort of saying like, don't rain on my parade, it's going to be fine kind of thing. And actually, like, I know in some ways it seems perhaps naive to go, I thought I'd recovered, but I actually do believe mm. in recovery, mm. but perhaps mm. not as kind of like blindly as I did before, because I thought this is me, I'm done. I'll publish my book. I go tell everyone how bad it can be and I'll be all shiny and Happily recovered. Ever Happily ever after. You can do it too. Ka-ching! Kind of thing. Like, like wave some kind of magic wand and be like, it's all good. <laughs> yeah. It's not always like that. It's though. not that linear, is it? No, no, it's not. So is it for you like the canary down the mine in terms of when you are stressed, when you're, are there things that trigger it in you? Yeah, I think when I am, when I'm feeling stressed about something, then by default, I have more routines to do. Like my obsessions come in faster. Um, And actually like anything, anything that might just seem kind of uh, random to your average person not that anyone is average uh, but can can really set me off one or someone walked into the bathroom today and I was uh, I suddenly became paranoid that there was a hole in my trousers and everyone was going to see my underwear mm. so I was checking my bum in the mirror like quite compulsively and then someone walked in I was like oh my god they think I'm checking my ass out and then like that can really really throw me and I really have end up having a moment with with that so for me it's about kind of learning how to well I am learning I learn every day (laughs) how to manage those thoughts and feelings just jumping in here when we're talking about she we're talking about Lily's OCD she manifests as a voice in Lily's head which is why her book is called because we are bad by we she's referring to the voice and herself so she almost sees herself as two people her and her OCD back to Lily the process of therapy, she didn't like that. She was very threatened by that, right? And she resisted it. She was just really angry about the fact that I was having therapy. And in the end, she kind of just went off in a strop. And that was that. 
and never came back which sounds really like like a crazy thing to happen given that she'd been with me my whole life but yeah pretty much she'd been fading she'd been losing her power right yeah and then as you got more power over your condition and then there came a final point at which point she just dropped off and much to your surprise and my surprise a little as a reader you were quite disconsolate about that yeah I think I was I I felt kind of bereft she'd been with me my whole life and for all the bad things that she was which she was you know she she was quite comforting sometimes and I missed her but you got through that I did yeah but then just because she left, she didn't take your OCD with her? No, she didn't. I just continued doing everything by myself. So at that point with uh, what I was talking about happening in the nursery, mm. it was just me going, what if I'm going to be in really big trouble? Because sometimes, sometimes she would reassure you, wouldn't she? She'd like, well, here's what, what we've got to do. Yeah, if you're really worried about something and someone is being really mean to you, but they're still giving you some kind of solution or what you feel is a solution to that problem, then there's going to be something attractive about that, right? Mm-mm. Through all of this, you still lived your life. You went to school and you went to university how paralyzing and how dominating was it of your life i think it would be hard for anyone other than me to truly understand how much of my life it impacted because on the outside i seemed so okay but actually that's not especially uncommon with people with ocd the um, average time taken for someone with ocd to get help is 12 years which is much longer than any other mental health condition Um, OCD sufferers are masters of keeping the whole thing secret so yeah it was turmoil for me uh, on the inside but on the outside I looked pretty normal Mm. you were high functioning yeah I was yeah and some of the things that um, people would traditionally associate with OCD like hand washing light checking you had aspects of those didn't you those rituals that you played out yeah I did and those things that we traditionally associate with OCD it's not a case of saying let's not talk about those at all let's focus on these other things that aren't spoken about as much but you know let's forget all the more traditional stuff because it's it's equally valid but I don't always focus on that aspect of it in interviews uh, just because I feel like that part does get more airtime Mm. and you know there are other parts that I think it's also good to talk about publicly that we don't talk about like we never really talk about intrusive thoughts because it's such an uncomfortable and difficult thing to say like I had this really uncomfortable like like, I had this really horrible violent thought like no one really wants to to say that but I think it's important that we do What is OCD not? OCD is not fun. So people often will be like, oh, I'm so OCD about my pencil case. I just love it when everything's really color-coded and it's so nice and blah, blah, blah. And they're kind of saying it with like a glee and a joy. Yeah, right. I mean, the clues in the name, it's a disorder. Like it's not supposed to be fun. Um, one of the criteria for having OCD is that you spend more than an hour a day doing it. So to anyone who kind of calls themselves OCD because they As like a humble brag yeah because they like doing something like it they're using the term the wrong way OCD is not something that we should just kind of say is a is a is a quirky thing it's actually very serious it's ranked by the World Health Organization in the top 10 most disabling illnesses of any kind I know a blind person with OCD who's uh, who I'm quite close to And he actually said to me at one point, you know, if I had to choose between blindness and OCD, 
I choose blindness because being blind is manageable. OCD isn't. Um, so I think yeah, that's the, it's OCD is not it's not trivial. I think that's the biggest misconception. Mm. And it's not a throwaway word or interchangeable with being really tidy or being fastidious or being uptight. It, it's it's like the word I guess anorexic isn't interchangeable with being slim. Yeah. Or going on a diet. Precisely. Yeah. yeah. What have been the things that you've done to to get it under control for you? So I had a lot of CBT, which was very helpful. Um, I didn't feel like it completely resolved my issues. And I'm currently having more traditional psychotherapy with a different therapist who I really like. Um, and I'm finding that to be very therapeutic. Um, I also have a dog called Rocky who came into my life uh, when things weren't so good. And um, he's really important to me. And, mm. you know, stuff like just getting out the house, taking him for a walk that's 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 not to be underestimated um i have really supportive friends and family i'm very lucky in that regard has it been hard for them to understand at times yeah yeah very much so i uh, i think when i was initially diagnosed my mum felt very guilty my dad felt very confused he like you know he couldn't see it so he was like well you know if you really had this thing that was that bad would i not know about it which is fair enough like you think you know your children right mm-hmm. So yeah, it has it has been hard at times. Being on tour and away from your routines and your dog, how's that been? How does that manifest your condition? Oh, I really miss my dog. <laughs> I really, really do. And I guess it's, I mean, going away is one thing and then you add in like the nerves of being on tour. I guess, I guess it's like, everything is like you turn the volume dials up on something I'm kind of like hypersensitive at the moment and I'm a bit on edge I'm also having a really great time like I love Australia it's so great here you can be both yeah Yeah. I think that's an important thing to remember like you don't have to be like one emotion or one state of mind at a time and you know sometimes you can be actually going through a period where you know you are stressed and you know stuff is going on but you know you don't lose complete sight of any kind of Mm. happiness and you know joy that you might feel I loved how you talked about when you got your dog and he would be watching you do (laughs) a lot of your routines at night and because so much of OCD is so private because there's so much sort of shame and secrecy associated with it as you describe it you suddenly become aware of him watching you yeah that was weird I kind of just thought he wouldn't bat an eyelid if I started like you know going around the room and turning things on and off and literally he's looking at me with his head cocked on the side like what are you doing (laughs) and it was so disconcerting and actually like quite important and good for me because when I start doing stuff he just gives me this look like oh it's I it's it's so great I love him (laughs) so it's almost like he he pokes the bubble like he bursts the bubble and like what are you doing and do you sort of go yeah what am I doing yeah often yeah and I'll just give him a cuddle and try and distract yourself distract myself yeah with romantic relationships which you start at the end of the book are you still with that guy no I'm not explaining it to him must have been you're coming out to him must have been how did it compare to coming out at work I think it's harder to come out to um, a partner in, 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 in many ways because if you when you really start to care about the person you have a lot vested in that relationship and it's always hard when I try and date people and 
and talk about OCD and the way I experience things. And I started seeing this guy quite recently, who I'm not seeing anymore. But when I did start seeing him, he was all like, so should I read the book or should I not read the book? <laughs> and um, I was like, please, God, do not read the book. Oh, really? I thought the answer would have been absolutely read the book because how can you hope to understand me without knowing this stuff? Well, it's not that I wouldn't want to tell him. But I feel sometimes like having written a book about like about this whole thing is it slightly places me at like a disadvantage. at a disadvantage when I meet people and interact with people because they can go and they can get that book, the book and they can they can read it and they can know my innermost private thought that I won't know about them. And it's not that it's not that I wouldn't tell them myself. But I, I sometimes hate the idea of yeah. of everyone I meet going forward in my life being able to just, you know, don't worry, most people are really lazy and they won't read it. I know. Um, That's what my mum says. My mum's my mom's like, you know, I, 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 I don't want to make you think your book's not very important, yeah, darling, but most people will not read it. That's very true. <laughs> most, most of your friends and family, they're just like, you know, they probably don't have time. They've, they've lived it or they're living it. <laughs> right, yeah. So strangers will read it, which is actually easier. I don't it? mind strangers yeah. reading it. Yeah. <laughs> That's okay. fine. I just wanted to finally ask you about medication, if medication play, has played a part in your recovery. Is it something that people should explore or can explore? I think often we are inclined to medicate people as a first line of response. Um, and I and I don't actually think that I think in some ways that's lazy treatment. Um, not in a not in a pill shaming sense because I take medication. Mm, same. Um, but I think it's lazy on the on the behalf of of the kind of medical medical model because we don't we don't necessarily consider actually do do we want this person to be on their on medication for life like what about the effects of it should we try some other therapy first we just go straight into it really often and we tell people they have chemical imbalances which has actually never been proven it's quite a dangerous myth to perpetuate um so whilst i think i think medication has a place um i i think I would urge people to get second opinions and to not just instantly take a pill they're given because I did that and I regret it. What's next <laughs> for you? Um, that's a good question. <laughs> I'm not entirely sure. I thought I'd write this book and then be like, right, on to my next book. I've always wanted to write fiction. Um, writing the book kind of zonked me out. Um, I think I was just mentally and emotionally exhausted after writing this book. Um, so I've been doing quite a lot of modelling. Um, it's just like, you know, I'm to engage brain in the same way. Thanks for listening to No Filter. Lily Bailey's book is called Because We Are Bad and you can buy it at iBooks at apple.co forward slash Mamma Mia. This is where you can also subscribe to all our other shows in one place or you can download our podcast app. That's the best thing to do if you want a one-stop shop for our podcasts. If you want to suggest a guest or just ask me a question, you can call or you can call the pod phone on 02 8999 9386 or you can flick me and my producer Eliza an email at podcast at mamamia.com.au. If you like this episode, we have so many others in our back catalogue. You might be new to No Filter. We've done around 100 episodes. So there's everyone from Georgie Gardner to Lisa Wilkinson, Nigella Lawson, Rosie Batty, 
Debbie Malone, who's a psychic detective, Naz Campanella, who is a blind journalist and newsreader on Triple J, Sally Faulkner, who tells the most incredible story about leaving her children behind. I've also spoken to men. This is not a pain-free zone. Ben Fordham, Paul Murray, Koshi. I think Koshi was one of the first episodes. Richard Feidler. Oh, my God. If you're interested in Richard Feidler, if you like his show, I interviewed him. That wasn't at all stressful, interviewing one of the best interviewers of all time. Speaking of which, Andrew Denton. I spoke to him as well. So if you're still listening, if anyone's still listening, there are so many interviews um, in the back catalogue of No Filter. Really great for road trips, drives, sick days, hospital stays, you know, in the shower, anytime really. I am Mia Friedman, the um, executive producer of podcasts at Mamma Mia is Monique Bowley and the head of entertainment is Holly Rain... Holly Rain White, Wayne Wright, actually. And that trips me up every time, even though I've said it over a hundred times at the end of these podcasts. My partner in crime on this pod is my producer, Eliza Ratliff. She's the one that writes these things for me to say and then indulges me when I go completely off script. She does the research, she does the editing, she makes it all sound really good, she cuts out the boring bits. Um, So... That's it. <laughs> oh, you'd think I'd get better at this. You'd think I'd get better at these end bits, but really, it's not getting any easier. I'm Mia Friedman. Come follow me on my Facebook page or on my Instagram. Uh, or you can subscribe to my newsletter. The best place to go is miafriedman.com.au. Uh, and that's where you can find out about my book, Work Strife Balance, and everything else. Lots of love. I will see you next week. <laughs>